Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, Merry Christmas. And uh, yet another service where the message has already been preached in many different ways through scripture reading and excellent song selection. And so... um, we're going home. Let's go. No, I actually prepared something. Um, maybe to put a little more flesh on the bones. Maybe not, but let's see. Um, listen, we have been taking the last three weeks, and instead of just getting wrapped up in a cultural movement, in a, in a, a set of calendar events, in cultural Christianity, to have a precision-targeted focus on preparing ourselves spiritually for the Christ Mass, through what has come to be known by the church over the centuries as the season of Advent. The word means, in the Latin, it means coming. And the idea of Advent for believers is a season of waiting and hoping and watching. And as we reflect on the first coming of Christ, we reflect on all of the Old Testament believers believing Israel that had the scriptures and understood that the scriptures promised the coming of Messiah. In century after century of our kindred spirits watched And waited and hoped that Messiah would come in their lifetime. And eventually, eventually, God kept his promise. And Jesus, Messiah, came. How appropriate on Christmas Eve, Sunday morning, to talk about the first coming of Jesus. And Jesus grew up. He demonstrated his power and his lordship over every aspect of creation through every kind of miracle possible. But it didn't end there. He was despised and rejected. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was tortured. And he was crucified. And just as the scriptures declare the coming of Jesus, they also told us that Messiah would come and suffer for the sins of the world. That he was put to death on a Roman cross. He was paying for the sins of the world. Now it's important to understand right here that that that's not a universal forgiveness. Universal forgiveness is available But it's only made actual for those who believe and receive. But Jesus died for the sin and the sins of the entire world. So that everyone might believe. But forgiveness comes to those who would put their trust in Jesus. And before we go any further, have you put your trust in this Jesus? Are you just a cultural Christian that thinks that, yeah, it's kind of just what I am? 
Because the scripture declares that every single man or woman must personally choose and must personally come to faith in Jesus, to ask him for the forgiveness of their sins. It's not an automatic thing because you go by this cultural moniker, this title called Christian. You must enter in by believing and receiving. And why would you do that? Well, guess what? He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave to prove historically that he is who he claimed to be. Not only the fulfillment of scripture, but his miracles in his personal I am statements. That he is God himself who died for the sins of the world. That he's paid for each and every one of our sins. He rose again historically. To put the seal of perfection and confidence on this gospel message. And today he is our high priest. For all genuine believers who have believed and received. He is at the right hand of the Father. Making intercession on our behalf. And he awaits the perfect time. That has been set aside by the Father for his second advent. This is why we take this month and hit pause and go back to this account. This is why we have stopped and we've focused in on Luke chapter 1 and now into Luke chapter 2. Because we believe, we believe that as we look at that first advent, it nourishes us, it teaches us, it instructs us, it disciples us. As we see ourselves reflected in the characters and the personalities in that first advent, we see ourselves. That we might be prepared as well, not for the first coming, but for the return of the Christ. And what we learn is that as we wait and watch and hope as they did, we are to pray as well. It was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 that said, Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, that means we are asking for the physical return of the king to bring in his kingdom in its fullness and every faithful believer yearns for the coming of christ where justice and peace and righteousness will come in full measure but until that happens we are to pray not only for that day but for parts and pieces of that kingdom to come in and through the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. That is what we do when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Dear God, we're looking and we're waiting and we're watching and we're hoping. We're looking backwards that he fulfilled his promise. He came and now we're waiting for his return and we're waiting on him and his promises for our daily lives and our daily journey and asking God to make his presence known through his people until he returns. 
And like I've said, in order to learn this, to be disciples of Jesus, we've chosen Luke chapter 1 through 2. There's a reason for that. It's kind of virgin territory over 15 years of preaching all kinds of Christmas Advent season messages. And you're pouring through and you go, you know what? This, this is yet undeveloped. And so this year we said, let's just camp out here. Let's just look and see what God has for us in Luke chapters 1 through 2. And give you a little bit of review for those of you who are just joining us for the first time or maybe missed a Sunday. On the first Sunday three weeks ago, we saw Gabriel's announcement both to Zechariah concerning uh, the birth of John the Baptist. He was beyond the age, and his wife was beyond the age of childbearing, and they were barren. And Gabriel told them, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be really special in my redemptive plan of the ages. He is going to be the fulfillment. We saw a couple prophecies during the readings that were, that were direct prophecies concerning the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, as well as Gabriel's promise to a young virgin named Mary that she would conceive before having relations with her husband, and she would become the mother of Messiah. Furthermore, we discovered Zechariah's doubt and cynicism and questioning of God in Mary's humble belief in receiving God's promise. That was a great discipleship lesson for us as we wait for the return of Christ. And then the next week, we unpacked the account of Mary's trip to see her Aunt Elizabeth. They were related. And God told Mary what had happened and what would happen through Elizabeth. And so she immediately went to see her. And we also have the meeting of the unborn children. John the Baptist is six months gestation. And Jesus the Christ Jesus of Nazareth is perhaps only a few days gestation, and yet we have a reaction as the two mothers meet each other. And just a powerful picture in Mary's song, the Magnificat. And God, the one who takes the lowly and the humble and the marginalized and lifts them and saves them. And blesses them. And then last week, Pastor Tyler opened the word for us again in Luke chapter 1. And we saw the birth of John the Baptist. The opening of Zechariah's mouth that had been closed for at least nine months because of his doubt and disbelief. And as he opens his mouth and prays to God, he praises God for his goodness to Israel throughout the ages. And he praises God for for the things that are about to transpire through the coming of Jesus. And his praise to God of joy concerning his son's role in all these things. Which brings us up to today, Christmas Eve morning. The coming of Jesus Messiah. The birth, should I say. He's already been here. For nine months in Mary's womb. But now he's here. Finally. This is what we read. 
in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, please read along with me quietly or follow along. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, or it could also be translated in the Greek, before. There's a reason for that. We won't go deep into that this morning, but but the first registration when or before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Interesting, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Finally, finally, the wait was over and Jesus the Christ had arrived. The bread of life born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. And the prophetic promises concerning the first coming of Messiah, over 300, begin to be realized and actualized in real-time space history. But the question for us this morning as we continue to look into this narrative here on Christmas Eve morning is, how does this instruct us? How is this to disciple us this morning? What are we supposed to do with this historical information and yes luke is offering we learned this on the first first message he's offering a carefully researched history of the roots of the christian faith for someone named theophilus and luke wants this person theophilus to know with certainty what he had been taught concerning the gospel that's luke's agenda But the question this morning is, is there anything more than a bunch of factual details, a careful list of researched details for us this morning? I want to just cite 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a pastoral epistle, Paul's last epistle to a guy named Timothy, where he says these words. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is our agenda here at Journey Church. Every time we gather publicly on a Sunday morning, we open the scriptures Believing that all scripture is breathed out for God. And all of it is profitable for these things. But the question remains for us this morning. How does this biblical narrative, this historical account of the travel and birth of Jesus instruct us? How does it teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us that we might be complete 
and equipped. And I believe the answer to that question begins in the first phrase of our text this morning. In those days. You see, these are time words. These are calendar or clock words. This is history. And this is prophecy fulfilled kind of language. I believe, I didn't find this anywhere, I just, it resonated and I, I looked to Daniel chapter 2. I believe that Luke is echoing a prophetic promise through Daniel the prophet. In Daniel chapter 2, little context, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He needs to have the interpretation, but he's really, really frustrated with all of the mystics and psychics. And so he's just, he's furious. He goes, I'm not even going to tell you my dream. You're going to tell me my dream. Because I think you're all frauds and fakes. And if you can't tell me my dream, I'm going to kill every last one of you. And Daniel and his three friends seek the Lord. And God tells Daniel exactly the dream. A vision of a statue. And not only does he give him what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, he explains it to and through Daniel. The statue has four major parts. The head represents Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And the torso uh, signifies the Medo-Persian Empire that will rise up and overthrow Babylon. And the legs represent the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great who will overthrow the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we get down into the feet. And the feet that are made of iron and clay represent yet another kingdom. This is, listen to what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2. Speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, as you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Now listen to this, and in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What's going on here? In the days of those kings, Daniel 2.44 and Luke 2.1, in those days is the echo, these days, Luke is saying. And according to Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the great statue, when we get down to those feet, would represent the Roman Empire. In these days... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was first registration when Quirinius was governor of of, of Syria. We already saw Herod in chapter 1, verse 5. Herod, king of Judea, as a Roman official. Now we have the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, making a royal edict. And so what is going on here? Luke fixes the date of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth by the reign of Caesar Augustus, who came into power and established the Roman Empire. It's a very, very interesting and fascinating study of Roman history. It can be divided into three very distinct periods of time. There was the Roman kingdom. It was small and struggling, 
began in 753 B.C., just a kingdom. 200 years later, it becomes the Roman Republic in 510 B.C. It's not the empire yet. It's not ruling the world yet. But then the Roman Empire begins in 27 B.C. with this man, named by Luke, Caesar Augustus. And wouldn't you know what? The history of Rome is a very messy 1600 plus year story with all kinds of alliance and agreements and arguments and assassinations and coups and civil wars. Exactly what Daniel said when he said, Iron mixed with soft clay so that they will mix together with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. All these alliances and these civil wars, this messiness of the Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus was the first of this era, the supreme emperor of all Rome. It was during this, the time of Caesar Augustus that a 200-year period of Roman expansion and prosperity began that has come to be called the Pax Romana. All roads lead to Rome. In general peace across the land. And this was the days of the birth of Jesus. Author Alyssa Root says this about Caesar Augustus in his reign and the census. Caesar Augustus was fond of censuses. It took a lot of taxes to keep the enormous Roman army going, to build roads, to finance military campaigns, to continue, comp to continue conquering the known world. Caesar Augustus was also just generally a luxurious emperor. He recorded in his diary, you want to know what the, the, his diary was, was titled? The Deeds of Divine Augustus. He recorded in that diary that he ordered widespread censuses of Rome at least three times, 28 B.C., 8 B.C., and 14 A.D. More localized censuses also took place regularly in certain areas of the Roman Empire. Judea faced at least three censuses around the time of the birth of Christ, in 8 B.C., in 2 B.C., and 6 A.D. The Romans were record keepers and empire builders, and censuses came with the territory. And why is this important again why in those days caesar augustus why this census why herod king of judea why quirinius the governor of caesar and i believe it's for this reason luke not only wants to anchor the birth of jesus firmly in world history that this is not mythology or legend made up on the sidelines out of the view of world history but even more so luke is teaching us something and that is that god is the orchestrator of world history caesar augustus may be ruling but god is reigning god is over and above all the kings kingdoms of man and God even using the heavy-handed rule of this powerful world leader in a royal edict that he's doing for his own selfish reasons. And God, God supervenes and says, yeah, you're playing right into my plan. Right on time. Thank you, 
Caesar Augustus. Well, it's not only how God used the actions and activities of these Roman rulers, but it's also the when. The when. Why at this point in time, if generations of God followers had come and gone, like us, longing to live until the return of Christ, right? That's what they were waiting for, the first coming of Christ. They wanted to see Messiah. 1,400 years, at least, from the promise given to Abraham that Messiah would come through him. 1,000 years from the days of King David who was promised that Messiah would come through him. 700 years from the promises given through Isaiah. 600 years from the time that Jeremiah gave some of these messianic promises concerning his first coming. 500 years from when Daniel prophesied 400 years from the time that Malachi prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. The point is generations after generations of faithful believers watched and waited and hoped and prayed for the kingdom of God to come in their lifetime. And yet God waited. Why? the first part of the bottom line of this message God is never in a hurry he's never in a hurry he exists outside of time he's not stressed out by the story no every every story every struggle feels like failure in the middle you ever think about that every challenge that we've ever faced if you're in the middle of one it feels like failure it's not going to work out And yet God sees the ends, and so he's not stressed out, so he's not in a hurry. And he's not unjust to keep his people waiting. He's never in a hurry, but he's also never late. Never in a hurry, never late. Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul writing to that first century church says this. But when the fullness of time had come, and that's a marker, God's perfect sovereign plan of the ages at just the right time in history, bam, nailed it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. She was Jewish, that's what it means, to redeem those who were under the law so that he might, we might receive adoption as sons. And all that to say, all that reflection on in the days of those kings and in those days and when the fullness of time had come to say this God is never in a hurry but never late and it's so comforting to know a blogger Krista Wenzel wrote it this way when Jesus the Messiah arrived his timing was perfect it was not too soon and not too late his first coming was not only perfect chronologically and historically It was perfect in God's providential time. So not just the how through the decree of an emperor, not just when at the fullness of time, but what. And let me fill out the rest of the bottom line for the message today. Never in a hurry, but never late. Always on time and exactly how promised. Exactly how promised. What did God promise 
in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures concerning the first coming of Jesus, and how does it show up here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. So we're going to fly through this quickly and see several things that, that we can glean from verses 1 through 7. First off, that Jesus, the Christ, would be human. You go, that's, well, duh. I mean, no, no, no. He, he could be an apparition. He could show up as the angel of the Lord. He, an, he could be an angel, a phantom. But no, the scripture is clear. He would be a human being. We see this, that Mary is with child. There is an embodiment of God himself in human form. And this is what was prophesied as early as Genesis 3.15, God cursing the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That this Messiah would be a human being. John 1.14, the word became flesh. A human being. Why is this so important? We read this in Hebrews chapter 2. This is why it's really, really important that God became a human being. Not just showed up as a phantom or uh, an apparition. He had to be embodied, the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. Or power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to become flesh and blood to help people like me. And maybe you. Not only would he be a human being, but he would be, and watch this, a Jew from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. With ever-increasing precision, focusing in on the exact bloodline through whom Messiah would come. First off, he'd be a Jew, not a Gentile. We read this in Genesis 12. The Abrahamic covenant. That through Abraham, in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then again, after he is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar and the angel stops his hand from slitting the throat of his son and God speaks to him and reconfirms in Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He would be a Jew through Abraham, but... Not only that, we discover in Numbers 24, this is an interesting text, the the, the prophetic utterance of a crazy prophet, an evil prophet named Balaam. He is paid to curse the masses of Israel. And God says, you cannot curse my people. Instead, you will bless them. And this comes out of his mouth in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. 
sorry, back up. Numbers 24, 17, that's Genesis 49. Balaam says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Messiah would be a Jew. Secondly, he would be from the tribe of Judah, and that's what I started to read. This is Jacob's final blessings. Uh, blessings. I put them in quote because some of his sons, he was not too kind with his words. You go back and read the end of Genesis. Um, but he is blessing his 12 sons. And when it came to Judah, he said these words in Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Messiah would come not only through the Jewish people, but through the tribe of Judah, and then specifically in the tribe of Judah, the line of King David. Nathan the prophet was sent to David, and he was to repeat these words to David. And I'm just I'm reducing them. Second Samuel seven verse eight through nine and twelve and sixteen. This is what he was to say to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts: I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. When your days are fulfilled, verse twelve, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom that's not messiah yet that's solomon but then he goes on in verse 16 in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever how does that happen a forever king would come through david and then look at how all these things are in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Joseph, Galilee, Nazareth, all that is completely Jewish. Where'd he go? To Judea. What's that? That is where the tribe of Judah settled. To the city of David. That's King David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he, he was of the house and lineage of David. With Mary, his betrothed. So... He would be a human being, he would be a Jew from the tribe of Judah, and the line of David, all fulfilled. And, and Luke is carefully chronicling fulfilled prophecy throughout these verses. Not only would he be these things, he would be born of a virgin. How do we see this in the text? Well, we see it in verse 5. Mary is called his betrothed, and she's with child. Why does he choose the word betrothed rather than wife? You need to understand in the first century Jewish customs that the betrothal period was as binding as the wedding itself or the marriage itself. Though betrothal, they did not consummate the marriage. Kids, you're in here. You can ask your parents about what that means later. But, but here she is called betrothed because she has not fully become his wife yet. She is a virgin, and she is with child. And where do we see this in Scripture? We read it, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And not only would he be a human being, not only would he be a Jew from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, not only would he be virgin born, but he would be born in Bethlehem. 
and it's named right here in the text. And why is this so interesting? Bethlehem is a tiny little village. I said this in staff meeting on Monday. It's like, for us, it would be maybe the town of Payson. And I, I think that that's even too well known. I think it's more like St. David or, or maybe St. John's. Where are these little towns? Yeah, one of our, our people, our, our youth minister said, I, I've lived in Arizona for a lot of years. Where's Payson? And I go, okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. Where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem was an obscure little town, and yet six, actually 400 years prior, through Malachi, or Micah, sorry, Micah 5.2, Micah the prophet says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me. One who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And it considered that the fact that he was born in Bethlehem rather than Nazareth is because of a, a royal edict from a heavy-handed Roman emperor. And what's all this add up to is this, not a single detail of God's plan to redeem the world through his Messiah would fail. It would be foretold and then fulfilled like clockwork. What does that do to disciple us here today? It's our bottom line. He's never in a hurry but never late. He's always on time and exactly as promised. Jeremiah 1.12, God tells the young prophet, he's a young man, and he says these words, for I am watching over my word to perform it. This is our trustworthy, good, and just, and holy, promise-making, and promise-keeping God. Never in a hurry and never late. Always on time and exactly as promised. Now, can I take that a step further for our lives here this morning? Because you go, that's great. Okay, we know that. I could give you maybe a test and you could fill in the blanks because you've got enough of it memorized. God is never in a hurry and never late, always on time. You could might maybe say, but what does this mean for your life? What does this mean for my life? Bring it down to the things that we're struggling with, that we say, we're, the kingdom of God is not yet fully realized. There's pain, there's sorrow, there's sickness, there's disappointment, there's divorce, there's death, there's injustice. Bring it down. What can we do with this? And here's the personal takeaway. For each one of us to reflect on receive, if God can orchestrate the fine-tuned details of world history... I can trust him with the fine-tuned details of my life as well. Right? How do we know this for sure? How do, we, how do we, I know that I'm not just making this up to make you feel good today? Because a few years later, Jesus would say, that, say it this way. Luke 12, 6 through 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Can you trust this kind of God with the fine-tuned details of your life? For the things that you're struggling with, the things 
And the, the prayers that have been prayed over and over again in those things that are yet left incomplete or undone. As you await his return, can you trust him? Can I trust him? Can we fully give our lives to him? Why is this so important? Here's why I think this is so important for us here at the end of 2023 Journey Church. Because beneath every sin, beneath every bit of impurity, beneath every act or attitude of selfishness, beneath every disobedient behavior to God, there is a lack of faith in the goodness and kindness and justice of our loving Heavenly Father. But if we can look at how God is faithful throughout history and we can see Jesus meant for us to bring that down to our personal lives and that we could rest in God's good character and good heart and good timing, perhaps we will stop sinning disobeying, mistrusting. We are to wait and trust and hope and pray and never quit. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12, same gospel, the words of Jesus. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that when they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Are you in a season of difficult waiting? Discouragement, pain, disappointment. Can you just open your hands and trust a powerful, good, and loving Heavenly Father? Don't quit. Don't stop believing. Don't stop praying. Don't start, stop hoping. Don't get sloppy. Don't slip into immoral behaviors. Don't turn to false gods, false hopes, broken cisterns. As the prophet said, medicating or numbing behaviors, but watch and wait, stay ready, pray, ask, seek, knock, hope in him, for he is your salvation. If he can orchestrate the fine-tuned details of, this, of world history, I can trust him with the fine-tuned details of my life. Amen? Okay, now here, here's the hook. Here's the hook to come back in a couple hours tonight. Here's our bottom line filled out with tonight's message. God is never in a hurry, but never late. Always on time and exactly as promised, but not as expected. Come back tonight and hear what that's about in the next verses. Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness throughout world history. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for those words you uttered, that we are of more value than many sparrows and the very hairs on our, each one of our heads are constantly numbered. And how much we can trust the good heart and perfect timing of our wonderful Heavenly Father. 
Oh, Lord, help us at all times trust and not turn to darkness and self-medicating behaviors and immorality, these other things help us to continue to keep our eyes on you so that when the master returns, we will be ready and awake with our lamps burning and full of oil and wicks trimmed and we will open the door to him. We can't wait. And in that vein, we say Maranatha, which means come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.